I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to episode 92 of the Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Jessica Sanchez of Rusted Earth Farm. Jessica is a farmer and weaver located in Western North Carolina. At Rusted Earth Farm, their goal is to produce and design sustainable handcrafted textiles from the soil up. As part of their farming practice, they aim to preserve struggling heritage breeds of wool by using ethical treatment, natural life grazing, and carbon farming. Hello, Jessica. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us how you found your way into the world of farming and textiles? I'll start by introducing myself. My name is Jessica Sanchez. I'm the owner and operator of Rusted Earth Farm, which is a fiber farm and art studio in Marshall, North Carolina. Um, and that's just uh, just north of Asheville, North Carolina, if you're familiar um, with this area. Um, we're up in the mountains on the west of the state. And I have been farming here for the past four years. Um, my husband and I moved down here from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, which is just outside of Philadelphia, in 2015. Before starting the farm, I moved around a lot in the U.S. and other countries, um, but I am originally from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. And what inspired you specifically to make that move from Pennsylvania to North Carolina and to start Rusted Earth Farm? (laughs) That was a really kind of a long journey, and we did not initially plan to come to North Carolina. Um, In fact, I was a little bit hesitant about moving so far south, but we did a lot of research and a lot of traveling um, to try to kind of pinpoint a place that we wanted to start this, um, take this big leap and start a whole new chapter. Um, So we did initially look close to home in in Pennsylvania um, and out towards um, kind of Lancaster where there's a lot of farmland um, and then we sort of made our journey down the Blue Ridge mountain range through West Virginia, Maryland and eventually North Carolina and when we got to <laughs> kind of looking at North Carolina I was I was sort of against the idea but we did a big road trip and and landed in Asheville and I thought this is not what I imagined at all it, it is such a cool little town um really really artsy I guess technically it's a city but it just kind of has this super cool vibe around it a lot of very capable people um who are very hands-on you know building their own lives out here in the mountains and then farmers and artists and just a a really cool community so so um we ended up settling here the economy was was relatively strong compared to some of the other towns we researched and my husband who worked in urban planning at the time was able to find a job in this area so that was a big uh big step to 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 push us down here what does the name rusted earth mean um the name Rusted Earth was an idea I came up with when we first purchased the land. Um, So we bought the land in 2014 
um, and then drove uh, drove down here. We had seen it. Well, I had seen it once before. Drove down here to close on the property um, and camped out on the farm for a long weekend. And just kind of exploring, like we noticed that the dirt is really red. It's kind of a, a heavy red clay around here. Mm. So that, um, yeah, that red color initially sparked the idea of rust. Um, and then during that first visit and the exploration of the farm, um, we discovered a buried car in the bank of one of our streams. Um, super, super old, like totally, totally rusted up. Um, and we talked about how it was a really cool illustration of how the earth kind of takes things back when when we're done with them. Um, and that discovery and the and the discussion and the red dirt kind um, kind of helped solidify the name Rusted Earth. Wow, that's really beautiful. It sounds so sort of, I guess, majestic. When you think of a farm, I've always, always loved um, the look of like red clay and the history of it. Yeah, it is pretty cool. <laughs> it, uh, at first it was like very cool. And then all the things in our, we've, we eventually built a home um, where well, we converted an old barn to a home. Um, so <laughs> sometimes I'm sick of the red because our furniture is like stained kind of red and our floors are always red. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember thinking <laughs> this was, this was beautiful. And I'm like, how do I get this red out? <laughs> and how much land do you own? Um, so the farm, it's a pretty small farm. We have 18 acres altogether. Um, and that's split up into a couple of little pastures that we rotate our sheep through. Um, and it's half, half wooded and half pasture, um, which, which kind of is part of what steered us towards the decision to raise the sheep, um, just so they, because they had the option to forage in the woods and we didn't want to clear cut, um, anything. Interesting. And do you grow or cultivate any other animals other than sheep or do you grow vegetables or plants in addition to taking care of your sheep? Um, we have a llama. So mainly it's the sheep, fiber sheep. We have a llama and she acts as a guardian um, for those sheep. So they're super cool animals. She also provides fiber, um, so she, um, you know, is one of our fiber animals, but she is instinctually incredibly territorial um, and will protect the herd from predators like coyotes. Um, and she's also instinctually a midwife, <laughs> which I recently learned this about llamas. I thought mm. she was just very special and very unique, like she helped our sheep when they were going into labor um, but it's actually part of the llama instinct to kind of surround um, their own herd member when they're when they're laboring and protect them while they're giving birth until um, the baby llama is called a cria. So it would be until the cria is is born and, and standing and able to move on its own. Um, but she does that for our sheep. The same thing. She just stands over until the lambs are up and walking around. Um, and it's really cool. And are you able to cultivate fibers from the llama as well? I am. Yeah, I shear her every two years. So her coat grows a little bit slower than the sheep. 
Um, but she produces a really nice, um, it's like a semi-coarse wool, which I have spun into a loopy yarn, um, which is like a single, single ply, uh, somewhat bulky. Um, and I use that in weaving. And can you talk about some of the sheep breeds that you are cultivating? Sure. So I raise a couple of breeds here, um, but mainly Navajo Churro. And they're a heritage breed that was actually the first breed of domesticated sheep in on this continent. And they were brought over by the Spanish conquistadors. Um, so <laughs> part of what why I raise sheep is is my passion for this breed. Um, it was sort of a long roundabout journey to come around to raising the sheep, but um, I became pretty obsessed with the Navajo Churro. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about their history as far as I know, and and it is their history that made them so appealing to me. They're descendants of the Andalusian Chura, um, which is the common sheep in Spain, um, and they were brought over from Spain in the 16th century to feed and clothe the Spanish armies and settlers on this continent. Um, So they found that the breed really thrived in the semi-arid climate out in the Southwest, um, and they were adopted by the Native Americans in that region. And that's how they earned the name Navajo Churro from just Churro. Um, So the sheep became a major economic asset for the Navajo um, they use them to produce woven textiles and they use them for meat. But if you've ever heard of like Navajo blankets or um, Navajo rugs, these are the type of sheep that produce, produce the um, fiber used to weave those things. Um, so back in the 1860s, the U.S. government ordered the destruction of the Navajo's livestock um, because they were pushing to get the Navajo off their land and basically take their land. Um, so they started um, destroying their food source and destroying um, uh, and anything they had valuable to trade. Um, so this was kind of the beginning of the end for the Navajo Churro at the hands of our government, which was pretty devastating for the Navajo. But by 1930s, the sheep numbers had grown back again, um, and there was a period of severe drought in the Midwest, and this is known as the Dust Bowl. Um, so the government ordered a massive herd reduction. Again, they um, essentially they started to round up the Navajo churro and slaughter them. Um, so the churro slaughter went on to some degree until the 1970s. And at this point, there was estimated to be around 450 sheep left. Um, so then this animal scientist named um, Lyle McNeil stepped in. Um, he recognized the historic and genetic significance of the breed, um, and he started putting conservation efforts in place to save them. Um, so they're still considered threatened by the Livestock Conservancy, but their numbers are up around 5,000 right now. Um, and part of my mission in this farm is to help this struggling breed and help bring back the Navajo Churro. Um, so we do breed them and sell them um, in our area. But yeah, that, that's a little bit about their history and, and their story and, and um, why we chose them. Um, but we also uh, raise Jacob sheep, which are pretty unique looking. They're white sheep with, with black spots. 
um, and they have a medium fleece. Um, so they have a little bit, they're a little bit softer than the churro. We have a couple of those. And then we have one <laughs> Icelandic sheep. Um, and she was, uh, she's really similar to the churro in that they both have um, this really soft undercoat and really long, coarse outer coat um, that makes really good fiber for weaving. Wow, such a beautiful history. Thank you for sharing that with us. Can you talk about the fiber quality of the Navajo sheep? Sure. Um, yeah, they have a really unique fiber. So I I just mentioned with the Icelandic girl, they have um, their, what's known as a dual-coated sheep. Um, they have a really soft insulating undercoat. Um, that's kind of like a medium fine fleece. And then they have this long, um, it's kind of striking looking, uh, almost hair like outer coat. So it's long and straight and um, that helps keep them uh, safe from like rain and really intense heat. Um, so it's a, it's considered a coarse fiber and it is very coarse. Like it's not something you would want to, knit with and wear up against your skin um, because it'd be super itchy. <laughs> but um, yeah, it spun up together with these two coats. It makes a super strong, um, like high tensile strength weaving yarn. So it's great for uses like saddle blankets or rugs um, because it is um, just very durable and can um, hold up to a lot of wear. That's super interesting. Can you kind of talk about what it's like to be a farmer and also a weaver? You have very beautiful weaving pieces. Can you talk about what it's like to be working so close to the farm and to also see these fibers that you are raising these sheep and then to turn those fibers into yarn and then to weave them into actual art pieces? Yeah. Um, and thank you. I, um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting being the farmer and the, uh, creator of the pieces because I'm so immersed in the work. Um, uh, uh, the creative process is so totally immersive that I, I really, it influences, um, my weavings at every level. So I can improve like the quality of my material, um, and I do so by investing in the health of my herd um, and making sure they have access to free choice minerals and vitamins that would help their hair um, grow stronger and better. Um, things like kelp, feeding them kelp actually help their help the quality of their hair um, and just making sure their overall health in general is is taken care of. Um, it, it ensures that I have a better product to work with and ensures that um, well, that I just have a happy, happy herd, <laughs> which makes me happy. Um, so, yeah, and there's this other kind of kind of strange, like really direct way I can influence my work with them. Um, like I can choose what type of colors I want my herd to be producing by choosing who goes into the breeding groups in the in the fall um, which would determine kind of what, what color babies we get in the spring. Um, so for example, if I really am into working with the grays and the silvers, um, I'll pick one of my gray rams and put him in with some of our gray, um, or spotted ewes 
and we'll get a lot of gray, you know, new gray lambs that, um, that following lambing season. Um, so, <laughs> so that's one way I can do it. And, um, of course that requires a lot of foresight and commitment to a color choice, <laughs> but I do actually really like working with grays. So I've, I've, um, <laughs> I've got quite a few in herd, <laughs> but yeah, another big, in, big way, um, that the work is influenced is that I harvest from the farm, a lot of the plants that I use to dye the yarn. So I get this, um, pretty nice spectrum of color from the sheep themselves. I have browns and grays and like, um, and silvers and whites and cream. Um, but then I can, I can get more vibrant colors from the plant life around here. So, and, and stuff that I, um, kind of food scraps from my kitchen. So things like avocado pits and onion skins. Um, but yeah, I harvest black walnut and different types of lichen here on the farm. And I use those to dye the yarn too. Um, so sometimes the work and the, the color palette is dictated by the season and what material, I have available to um, to die with, and I kind of like that about it. It's like s- seasonal weavings. And can you tell us about the plants that you're using to dye your yarns with? Are you foraging or growing these plants? Sure. Um, most of what I'm using that's uh, from the farm uh, is foraged. Uh, um, so right now my sheep have access to pretty much all of our land. <laughs> We've attempted some gardens and um, we're kind of learning as, as we go. This is um, these past five, uh, four or five years have been my first experience in farming. Um, so <laughs> sheep can get through fences pretty easily. We've tried doing um, um, a dye garden, which is in our plan for next spring, uh, my husband and I have been working on a really, really, really secure fence around our house. And we fenced off a, uh, about a quarter of acre land up the hill from our house where I'll be planting, um, planting dye, uh, dye plants, flowers and um, vegetables that I can use. Um, but for now, what I use is um, black walnut and I harvest those when in the fall we get like um, every other year we get a really big black walnut harvest so I do my black walnut dyeing then when that's available um, and that gives a, a really nice brown tones like a kind of reddish brown to really really deep brown um, and then you can do other things to alter that color like put an iron wash um, and I harvest um, a type of lichen called usnea um, and that gives a really cool um, spectrum of colors, anywhere from like a really rusty orange to kind of olive brownish green, um, depending on how I um, how I uh, adjust the pH of the dye pot um, and other other variables that go that go into there. Hmm. And you mentioned that this is your first sort of um, entrance into farming. How did you develop your skills in farming as well as in weaving? So to some degree, learning as I go, um, (laughs) the farming came first. So after buying the land, we evaluated what it was best suited for. Um, I live out in the mountains. um, So the lands that we have is really, really slopey. Like we have kind of two high peaks and a little valley between um, so we knew it wasn't really set up for ag, um, for growing um, crops and stuff. Um, so right away we looked into, um, or we kind of settled on on raising 
some type of animal, um, but I couldn't quite swallow the idea of um, raising livestock for meat, um, at least not completely. I just um, wasn't okay with it. So um, did some research into this area and found that it's, we have a really, really dense population of fiber farmers and fiber artists out here in Western North Carolina. Um, so that kind of steered, uh, uh, steered us in that direction. And initially I was really, really, really <laughs> hung up on raising alpacas, but, um, it researched and visited some alpaca farms and, um, realized that they are really, really expensive <laughs> to purchase and really expensive to care for. Um, so we kind of, um, fell back on sheep and I had already done um, some research into the heritage breeds that we were interested in. And the Navajo Churro was, was the top of the list there. Um, so it, this is at, at my first experience in, in raising my own livestock. Although I do have experience working on farms. Um, I've lived in Montana for a while and worked on a, on a ranch out there as a wrangler um, taking care of horses, mucking stalls, um, <laughs> riding green horses, uh, which is the term for um, the the somewhat untrained new horses. Um, <laughs> so that was actually a really hard job. I got it was tough. I got kicked and bucked off horses and stepped on, and um, but I really loved it. And that was um, back in my, I think I was twenty one or twenty two doing that job, and that that kind of planted the seed for me that I wanted to be a farmer someday um, and work with animals. And after that, I actually lived in Africa for a little while um, and worked on a wildlife reserve outside of Kruger National Park, um, tracking lions and elephants and taking data about them. Um, so that, that was a really awesome experience as well. Um, but again, not, not really anything like raising sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned um, the, your surrounding community in the Asheville area. Can you kind of talk about um, what it's like to be a farmer and, and also how you are building relationships with your community? Yeah. Um, so we have an incredible community and that has been a, one of the biggest surprises and, and kind of things that have kept me going through this um, you know, moving to a new place and not knowing anybody was, was super challenging and super difficult, but the people around us and the other farmers around us are incredibly supportive and really welcomed us with open arms. So when I first moved to the area, I <laughs> did as much research as I possibly could, reaching out to other farmers and asking if I could come visit and just pick their brains about raising animals and the different types of animals and, you know, how they became financially sustainable and just, you know, different techniques and, and what to do to, to maintain the health of their animals. Um, so I found that everyone I contacted was more than willing to help me, more than willing to just give me hours of their time and, and um, share as much of their experience as they possibly could. Um, so that's been really, really cool, really uplifting. And it's something that I definitely try to pay forward when other people reach out to me who are coming to the area and have the same or similar dream and, and want to learn. Um, I love having people out here and, and showing them our animals and, um, and hoping to be part of their, their support network. And a really uh, uh, awesome story along those lines. I had my first year with the sheep, 
we were kind of getting into the heat of summer and I had hired a shearer to come out and shear them. Um, but he was not showing up and he's like the guy who shears not only in this area, but he travels up and down the East coast. Um, he does happen to live around here, but he just kept putting us off and putting us off and it was getting hotter and hotter. Um, so I came home one day and one of my black sheep was turned belly up on the pasture. Um, and I saw her and ran out and flipped her over, um, walked her to the water. Like she seemed fine, kind of dizzy. And I called a vet and we realized like what had happened was she had heat exhaustion, um, because she was one of the darker, um, sheep in the herd. She was more affected by the heat and the sunlight. So I was like, all right, we've got to do something about these sheep. So I called some of the female farmers in our area, uh, this awesome group of women, none of whom had any experience in shearing sheep <laughs> and asked if they would come out and help me. Like I was desperate and I was like, this is an emergency. Um, so I had like five or six women come out and we struggled through <laughs> shearing my herd of, at the time there were 17 sheep. Um, and it took us like hours to do one sheep and they kept coming back day after day for like two weeks. We were, um, tackling this project and eventually we got all the sheep sheared. Um, and it was just kind of like, after that was behind us, it was this incredible moment of relief and like realization that I can do this and the support of this community is just going to be, you know, what carries me through and helps me figure out how to, how to, um, exist as a farmer here. So you've talked a little bit about raising Navajo sheep and the history and climate beneficial wool. Can you go a little bit more into depth about what it's like to be a farmer in this current economic system? How are you able to sustain environmentally, socially, financially? And what have been some of the challenges to continue working in the way that you're working and sustaining your practice? I'm really glad that you included this question because I do think that these things are are super important to talk about um, and just for people to understand, you know, ways that we can better um, improve our sustainability practices. Um, and and um, so I'll start off with talking a bit about um, what we do um, to foster sustainability um, from an environmental standpoint. Um, so. We, util you, uh, we utilize carbon farming practices to produce climate beneficial wool, um, which is really just a complicated way of saying um, that I raise a herd of sheep on pasture. Um, we rotate them on pasture and we, we make sure that our soil is healthy. So I'll break that down a little bit with the definition of um, carbon farming. Um, so carbon farming is any farming practice that works to enhance the soil's ability to absorb carbon. Um, and you can do that by increasing the amount of organic material in the soil. Um, so on our farm, um, we do that by amending the soil with compost. Um, we do it by rotating pasture, which allows plant growth to recover after the animals have grazed. Um, we keep some areas of the farm completely ungrazed um, so we have these like wildflower gardens um, that help attract pollinators um, and improve the health of all the all the plant life on the farm. Um, 
And our sheep have access to woodland, which actually helps improve their health because it gives them um, more variety in their diet, gives them access to different plants, different um, minerals and vitamins than just having uh, the grasses and legumes, which they would have access to on pasture. Um, so essentially, we made the decision not to clear cut this land um, and keep the trees. And the trees are hugely beneficial in the absorption of CO2. Um, so having them there improves the health of the land and the health of our herd. Um, uh, another another way we do this is to we increased the vegetation on our stream banks. Um, we had a little project last spring where we planted naturally stabilizing trees and shrubs along the banks of the stream where the soil was eroding. Um, so uh, this essentially created a a buffer. Um, it keeps the sheep from having access to the stream, which can can also contribute to erosion, just their foot traffic. Um, and it just helps hold the soil into those banks um, so that dirt isn't constantly washing down in a way and off of our farm through the stream. So all of these practices help improve the health of our soil and they help it to more effectively absorb carbon. Um, so essentially, we are taking or trapping CO2 and using it to produce wool. So that's kind of the, the environmental aspect of this. The social aspect um, is really tied into the history of our Navajo churro sheep. Um, so for me, their story is kind of the forefront of um, the work that I produce. Like this work is meant to share what this breed has been through, um, essentially what they have been through is the story of the Navajo people um, and our government's ongoing efforts to subjugate them. Um, so at, I just, my goal is to help raise awareness about um, what they've been through, um, what they're still going through, um, and, you know, just just let people know that <laughs> that the struggle is, is real. Um, so that's kind of our, our, our social our social contribution and all of this. Um, the, and the third part of our, of this question, the financial sustainability is definitely, for me, it has been the most challenging part of starting, of starting a farm. The initial huge challenge was the investment in the land, which is really um, the biggest challenge for, for all young farmers or anyone getting into farming for the first time having access to land, whether by purchasing or through lease, um, that big financial commitment um, is is just hard to swallow and hard to recover from. Um, so our obviously that was the biggest investment for us starting, actually purchasing the, the 18 acres that we farm on. Along with that, the other massive challenge in small farming, which sheds light on one of the biggest problems in the agricultural industry is that the raw material we produce by raising our sheep on pasture is not worth the amount of money that it costs to care for that sheep for a year. Um, for example, it costs me $150 annually to cover the food and medical expenses of one sheep. Um, and that single sheep produces four to six pounds of fiber per year. 
So that raw material, it's called a raw fleece, which means unwashed. Um, from the Navajo churro, it's worth about $10 a pound. Um, so at the most, I can produce $60 of raw material from an animal that costs me more than twice that to keep alive and well. Um, and that 150 doesn't begin to cover the, the um, hours and labor that I actually put into the farm. So that's just um, the actual cost in expenses of food, um, um, deworming medications and any other medical uh, needs that they might have. Um, so this is a huge problem and it's why, um, it's why factory farming has kind of taken over the agricultural industry because it's much, much cheaper to raise an animal in a factory. Um, and you produce a much cheaper product. So, um, yeah, this is kind of the, the root of it all. Um, and I do think people who fall in love with the romantic idea of farming are really quickly disillusioned by, by this reality. Um, so to kind of break down what this has looked like for us, um, in our first year with the sheep, I, I sheared them and then sold the raw fleeces. Um, so that year cost me more than I, more than I, more than I made um, to, to just support them. This, the second year with them, we realized that actually taking that raw material and taking it further down the production line, like the further we took it, the more we invested in the production of it, the more potential there was to attain that financial responsibility. So it's tricky because you have to, <laughs> it looks like you're just putting more and more money in, like you have to pay to get it cleaned, you have to pay to get it processed, um, you have to pay to come up with this product, but the value of the product um, increases much more so that so that potential profit margin increases and covers the cost of the processing. So the further along you can take that that material, um, the more potential you have. So in our second year, we actually um, did turn all of our fleeces into a local mill and had it processed into yarn um, and sold the yarn. And at that um, at that year ends, we got to kind of a break even point financially. Which was nice. It was like small accomplishment, but um, you know, still, I'm I'm working a full time and not getting any paid for it. <laughs> so I've got to be able to support myself, and that's the goal. Um, and that's where it kind of pushed me into this need to produce a finished product. Um, so the finished product for me, I, this is my first experience in weaving. I built my own loom so that I could learn how to weave. Uh, I'm on my second one now because I really didn't know what I was doing the first time around. Um, but anyway, it's it's the motivation behind weaving was to to support this herd, to support myself, um, to produce something that can make this whole <laughs> this whole project work. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I still haven't sustained or, or achieved that sustainability, but I know that I'm on the right path with this. Um, and it's what I'm going to just keep working towards um, with the weavings. Um, so <laughs> that said, like, how can anyone really do this? I'm really, really lucky enough to have um, a partner who has started his own business outside of the farm. Um, he started, he kind of gave up his whole career uh, as a um, urban planner and started a landscaping business. Um, and he's been able to support our own personal um, finances through his business. Um, the goal eventually, obviously, is to is to have both 
both businesses supporting us. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where we are with the, with the financial aspect of it. Thank you for sharing and being so transparent about the finances and what it takes. I definitely understand what you mean when you say that people become very quickly disillusioned from the fantasies of farming when you actually realize what it's like on the ground. Yeah, I think in theory, I mean, a lot of people dream of it and how, you know, amazing it would be to be self-sustained and that's what that's what drove us to it too but yeah the real the reality of it kind of hit us hard year one we were like how do we keep this going (laughs) so we've had to just be creative and and you know really stick with it and um keep trying new things what's interesting about what you mentioned is that you were kind of talking about the further along that you can participate in the process, the more opportunity that there is to create a profit. And so it's kind of like, I guess, breaking that down is kind of saying like, because you are working from the farm and processing, and then you also have this opportunity to create the yarns, you have an opportunity to sort of set the price. Although it takes a lot more work, there is a a bit more of an opportunity to sort of create something based off of that, if that makes sense. You know, when you said that, I kind of started to think about your weaving practice. And and I'm wondering if you can speak to your weaving aesthetic and design choices. Yeah, um, I'd be happy to. Um, So that's been kind of an interesting process to, like, watch myself um, come into, I guess. Uh, I've worked with a lot of different types of mediums in in the art world um, and my background is in ceramics um, I also do woodworking and pottery but fiber is totally new to me so um, it, it's really just been um, I started weaving maybe two and about two and a half years ago it was in, a, in the summer um, and it's really just been this past year and a half that I've actually um, found like my voice in um, the fiber work. Um, so that's been really cool to see that develop. Um, initially, I was just kind of like creating just for the the practice of like, you know, learning the motor skills of how to weave really. Um, so I just made piece after piece and <laughs> it wasn't really anything that was very personal to me. Um, I was just kind of like trying to create shapes, um, not putting that much thought into them um, just for the practice of it. So um yeah so it's been just cool to see like my ability in weaving catch up to my imagination um and so for me the the pieces I'll start with a design um and I draw that down um and they usually come to me while I'm dreaming (laughs) so I've got this little notebook I keep next to my bed um, and I wake up in the middle of the night and like jot down jot down the image of of whatever it is I, I was thinking about um, and interestingly, it's usually like a dream or a character from a dream that morphs into a weaving. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, kind of, kind of weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, then I'll take that sketch and, and develop it further, um, into a finished design. Um, and I would say that my aesthetic is like really, really minimalistic, um, pretty modern. Um, I like, uh, uh, simple shapes. Uh, right now, I'm really embracing the challenge of weaving 
um, circles and smooth curves. Like I love that that's hard to do at a weaving. I love um, trying to achieve something like that that's difficult. So that's kind of been like where a lot of my pieces um, have those elements. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of take the design and then I develop, I start to de develop a palette pretty much based on like what materials are available to me at the time on the farm. Um, so like what kind of plants I can harvest, um, how many avocado pits I have in my freezer, like what can I <laughs> use to make the colors and then, and then, you know, pairing them together to make sure, um, I've got a palette that goes really well. So yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much the process from, from there. I just start weaving and, uh, and, uh, make my finished piece. Amazing. And do you have any new projects or future prospects that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. So something I'm pretty excited about um, is this spring, we're going to be planting um, a dye garden on the farm. Um, so I'm really, really excited to have to kind of expand my palette um, and be able to pick and choose what plants I, I put in the ground um, and to be able to you know, be harvesting 100% of my color palette from the farm. Um, it's also a cool educational opportunity to like show people, you know, what plants make what colors. Um, and we do have people out to the farm occasionally to, to learn about the sheep, but this is just another, you know, educational aspect that we can add to um, those tours. Um, so that's one, one big thing I'm really, really excited about. And another kind of on the horizon future aspect or a thing we'll be working on is um, taking the actual processing of the fiber in-house. Um, so it's something we've been looking into, you know, the um, pretty much pretty small equipment um, to be able to actually process my fleeces, clean them, card them, um, and spin them into yarn here on the farm rather than sending out to um, another one of the local mills, which is um, that processing is, is one of our biggest annual expenses. Um, so that'll be really nice to have it to invest, you know, back into our into this business and, and have that all happening here. People go on social media and the Internet to follow and support your work. Um, yeah, so I've <laughs> you can follow on Instagram, it's kind of just my feed is like my day-to-day -day <laughs> stuff that I do with the sheep and them being wacky <laughs> and the weavings that I produce. Sometimes I do like little videos um, and pottery. So that's a big thing that I do here too. Um, my Instagram name is at rustedearth, one word, dot co. Um, we also have a Facebook page. Um, uh, rusted earth farm um and then we have a uh there's a website which is rustedearth.co as well awesome so before you go we have one question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast and that is do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts Sure. Um, yeah, I think the the best advice I could give is to anyone like getting into it for the first time. Uh, just keep going. Um, you know, it takes a lot of time to get even decent at it. So be patient with yourself. Allow yourself time to learn. 
um, don't expect to be good at something right away. So, um, you know, if you're passionate enough about something, take the time, learn, uh, keep practicing and um, just get better and better. So, yeah. That's a wrap. If you're interested in finding out more about Rusted Earth Farm, you can find links in the show notes at www.chisyarn.com slash episode dash 92. Next week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Mary Jean Packer of Batten Kill Fiber Mill. In our conversation, we talk about how her community stood by her after a devastating fire and how she has sustained the last working wool mill in Hudson Valley, New York. So stay tuned for next week's episode. And until next time, happy weaving.